What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com. Stephen Pinker in conversation with Matt Ridley. This talk took place on the 3rd of November 2011 at the Royal Geographical Society in London. Believe it or not, and I know most people do not, violence has been in decline for long stretches of time, and we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence. The decline of violence has not been steady, it has not brought violence down to zero, and it is not guaranteed to continue. But I hope to persuade you that it's a persistent historical development, visible on scales from millennia to years, from wars and genocides to the treatment of children and animals. I'm going to walk you through six historical declines of violence, try to identify their immediate causes, that is, particular historical events of the era, and then try to tie them together in terms of their ultimate causes, that is, general historical forces interacting with human nature. The first historical decline of violence I call the pacification process. Until around 5,000 years ago, humans everywhere lived in anarchy without central government. What was life like in this state of nature? This is a question that thinkers have speculated on for hundreds of years. Thomas Hobbes famously wrote that in a state of nature, the life of man is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A century later, Jean-Jacques Rousseau countered that nothing can be more gentle than him in his primitive state. Now, these two gentlemen were talking through their hats. Neither of them had any idea what life was like in a state of nature. But today we can do better because there are two ways of estimating rates of violence in non-state societies. The first is forensic archaeology. I think of this as CSI Paleolithic. Uh, Namely, what proportion of prehistoric skeletons have signs of violent trauma, such as bashed-in skulls, decapitations, arrowheads embedded in bones, or mummies found with ropes around their necks. Uh, Here we have 21 uh, estimates, and they span quite a range, but their average is 15%. That is 15% of uh, people in non-states, in in, uh, archaeological sites, uh, appear to have met their end through violence. We can compare that figure to those from some modern states. Uh, Here we have the battle deaths from the United States and Europe in the 20th century at about uh, six-tenths of a percent. 
Here we have the entire world in the 20th century throwing in all of the deaths from genocide, the indirect deaths from starvation and disease, uh, and the deaths from man-made famines, and that comes up to about 3%. And here we have the world in the year 2005. The bar is less than a pixel high and hence uh, invisible because it is at 3 one-hundredths of 1%. The second way of estimating uh, violence in non-state societies is through ethnographic vital statistics. The various waves of government that spread out of the first cradles of civilization left a few pockets of the earth still in a state of anarchy, namely uh, tribal societies of hunter-gatherers and hunter-horticulturalists, and ethnographers who lived with them over a protracted period of time can calculate the various causes of death. Here we have 27 estimates, and again, they span quite a range, but they average 524 per 100,000 per year. That is about one-half of 1% 1 of the population dies from uh, warfare every year. Again, let's compare that figure to those from modern states, and I'll stack the deck against modernity by picking some of the most violent states in their most violent periods, such as Germany in the 20th century, two world wars, uh, uh, comes in at 160 per 100,000 per year. Russia in the 20th century, two world wars and a civil war at 140. Japan, a world war that ended with not one but two nuclear strikes at about uh, 40. United States in the 20th century, two world wars and half a dozen other foreign wars at less than four. The world in the 20th century, again, a uh, maximal estimate that includes the deaths from genocides and man-made famines is about 60. And the world in the year 2005, the battle death rate is about uh, three-tenths of uh, a, a violent death per 100,000 per year. So not to put too fine a point on it, but when it comes to life in a state of nature, Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. The immediate cause was the rise and expansion of states, leading to the various paxes, the states of peace imposed by uh, the kingdoms and empires, such as the Pax Romana, Pax Islamica, Pax Hispanica, and so on. The uh, expansion of empires drove down rates of violence, not because the early kings and emperors had a benevolent interest in the welfare of their citizens, but rather because tribal raiding and feuding is a nuisance to overlords who'd rather keep the people alive to supply them with soldiers and slaves and uh, taxes. Just as a farmer has an interest in preventing his livestock from killing each other, so a early king or emperor would rather uh, that the, his people not waste resources in settling scores among them or shuffling resources around, uh, but he would rather have a claim on them himself. The second historical decline of violence can be illustrated by this woodcut showing a day in the life of the Middle Ages. <laughs> and the process that changed it has been called the civilizing process. Homicide records go back in many parts of Europe for centuries, and historical criminologists such as Manuel Eisner have plotted them over time. Here we have a plot that runs from the year 1200 to the year 2000, and I've plotted the homicide rate here on a logarithmic scale from a tenth of a homicide per 100,000 per year to 1 to 10 to 100. And as you can see in the graph, there's been a massive decline in the homicide rate, uh, so that a contemporary Englishman has 1 35th the chance of being killed as his medieval ancestor. This is true not just in England, but in every part of Europe for which statistics have been uh, gathered. Here we have Italy, the Netherlands, Germany and Switzerland, and Scandinavia. 
Here is the average of those five regions. And for the comparison's sake, I've plotted the 524 per 100,000 per year figure from the non-state societies. This gap here is more or less what I've been calling the pacification process, this further decline, the uh, civilizing process. I took the title from a classic book by the German sociologist Norbert Elias, who argued that in the transition from the Middle Ages to modernity, there was a consolidation of central states and kingdoms from the patchwork of, uh, of um, baronies and principalities and duchies that had uh, previously polka-dotted the continent. With it, criminal justice was nationalized, and the constant uh, feuding among warlords, otherwise known as knights, gave way to the king's justice. Also during this transition, there was a growing infrastructure of commerce, financial instruments and, and uh, currencies that were recognized within the borders of these newly consolidated kingdoms, and technologies of transportation and timekeeping that lubricated trade, so that increasingly zero-sum plunder gave way to positive-sum trade, a point that I will return to. The um, third transition can be illustrated by considering some of the ways that the early uh, authorities kept peace within their kingdoms, punishments such as breaking on the wheel, burning at the stake, clawing, sawing in half, and impalement. But in a process that's been called the humanitarian revolution, these four barbaric practices were abolished in a fairly narrow slice of time. Uh, here we have a timeline of the uh, number of major countries with judicial torture, and there was a wave of abolitions concentrated in the second half of the 18th century, including uh, the famous prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment in the Eighth Amendment to the uh, American Constitution, although England clearly got there first. Uh, also uh, abolished during this time was the profligate use of the death penalty for non-lethal crimes. In 18th century England, there were 222 capital offenses on the books, including poaching, counterfeiting, robbing a rabbit warren, being in the company of gypsies, <laughs> and strong evidence of malice in a child 7 to 14 years of age. Uh, these weren't just on the law books, but they were exuberantly applied. For example, Samuel Johnson wrote of a 7-year-old girl who was hanged for stealing a petticoat. But by 1864, the number of capital crimes had been reduced to four. I'm going to switch back to the original presentation now that I got that good stuff out. Uh, also, uh, more recently, the death penalty itself uh, has uh, been on death row. Uh, this timeline shows the number of European countries that have capital punishment in their law books. There was a wave of abolitions more recently in the last 75 years, but the blue line, which shows the number of European countries that actually carry out executions, show that well before uh, European countries struck capital punishment from their law books, they had lost their taste for applying it. And the uh, downward trend for countries that actually executed criminals started uh, well before the legal abolitions. Also abolished during this time were witch hunts, religious persecution, dueling, blood sports, debtors' prisons, and perhaps most famously, slavery. Slavery used to be legal everywhere in the world. All the ancient civilizations practiced it. No one seemed to find anything wrong with it. Then, starting in the 18th century, a uh, wave of abolitions 
uh, was initiated that culminated in 1980 with the abolition of slavery in Mauritania, uh, which marked a, a transition such that for the first time in history, slavery was illegal everywhere uh, on earth after thousands of years in which it had been legal everywhere on earth. What were the immediate causes of the humanitarian revolution? Well, a plausible uh, prior event was the rise of printing and literacy. Uh, this graph from 1500 to 1850 shows that in the uh, 18th, uh, sorry, the 17th century, there was an almost 25-fold increase in the efficiency of uh, manufacturing books. That efficiency was put into practice, so there was an exponential growth in the number of books published in the 18th century, kind of an early version of Moore's Law. And there were more people around who could read them. It was during the 18th century that for the first time a majority of Englishmen were literate. Why should literacy matter? Well, another name for this era is the Enlightenment because knowledge replaced superstition and ignorance. And if you have propagation of ideas, the driving of bad ideas out by good ideas, and people are disabused of notions such as that Jews poison wells, heretics go to hell, witches cause crop failures, children are possessed by the devil, Africans are brutish, and so on, it's bound to undermine many rationales for violence. As Voltaire said during this period, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Also, printing is a technology of cosmopolitanism, a, a way that people can be raised out of their parochial vantage point and be exposed to new ideas and new people. And it's plausible that the habit of reading fiction, history, and journalism can encourage people to inhabit other people's minds, leading to an expansion of empathy and a decline in cruelty. If you're in the habit of imagining what life is like from the point of view of other people, perhaps you take less, less pleasure in watching them be sawn in half. The fourth major historical decline of violence has been called the long peace, and it speaks to the commonly made assertion that the 20th century was the most violent in history. Now, it undoubtedly is, is true that World War II was the deadliest event in human history in terms of the absolute number of people that were killed, but there were an awful lot more people around in the 20th century, and it's not so clear that it was the worst event in history in terms of the percentage of the population that was killed. In this graph, I'm going to show you the 100 worst things that people have ever done to one another, uh, taken from a list by a man who calls himself an atrocitologist. Uh, <laughs> Matthew White, who has a, a book coming out soon. I've scaled them by the population of the world at the time and plotted them on a graph that runs from 500 BCE to 2000 CE. And the graph shows us that as a proportion of the population, World War II only comes in at ninth place, and World War I isn't even in the top 10. And for that matter, history's worst atrocities are pretty evenly sprinkled over 2,500 years of human history. Now, there, uh, you will undoubtedly notice that the data cloud funnels downward for the last 500 years. Presumably, this is not because in ancient times they only committed really big atrocities, and more recently we've committed big, medium, and small ones. But rather, it's a reflection of the historical record. The closer you get to the present, the more complete the records are. So let's zoom in on the last 500 years, a period in which Jack Levy has plotted trends in great power war. These are the wars that involve the 800-pound uh, guerrillas of the day, the countries that can project military force beyond their own borders. 
Uh, and the, all of these graphs stretch from 1500 to the present. Uh, this graph shows the proportion of years that the great powers fought each other, and it shows that several centuries ago, the great powers were pretty much always at war with each other. This, this is 100% of the time. More recently, uh, they've rarely been at war with each other. This is a graph showing the frequency of wars involving a great power, how many new wars were begun per 25-year uh, period. That also shows a decline. Here we have the duration of wars involving a great power, yet another decline. Past centuries had uh, events such as the Thirty Years' War, the Eighty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War. Uh, the 20th century had the Six-Day War. But there's one trend that goes in the opposite direction, and that is the deadliness of wars involving a great power. Namely, once they did begin a war, how many people were they able to kill per country per year? And that shows a substantial increase until 1950, where the curve does a U-turn. And over the last 60 years, we've been living through a period in which the frequency of war has gone down, the duration of war has gone down, and uniquely in history, in recent history, the deadliness of war has gone down as well. If you combine uh, all three of these statistics to yield a total, a death toll for, uh, uh, for great power wars, you get a zigzag line that terminates in the lowest rate of death in warfare in 500 years of great power history. We can zoom in on the uh, last 100 years, for which the data are still more detailed. And I'm going to show a graph that I adapted from uh, someone who's in the audience, the peace researcher Nil Nils Petter uh, Gledich. And this breaks down, this shows the death toll from all war wars worldwide over the course of the 20th century. And there are two unmistakable bloodbaths around the time of the two world wars, but they did not augur an increasing trend or even a new normal, but rather something closer to a last gasp. And over the last 66 years, you see the line hugging the floor, showing an unusually low rate of death in warfare. This has been called the long peace, the fact that since 1946, there's been a historically unprecedented decline in interstate war. Uh, the United States and Soviet Union fought zero wars between them, contrary to all expert predictions that a third world war was inevitable. No nuclear weapon has been used since Nagasaki, again contradicting a widespread consensus that the Third World War would be a nuclear war. There have been no wars between the great powers since 1953 with the end of the Korean War. No wars between Western European countries, which may, might sound like a banal observation, like who would ever expect today, say, France and Germany to go to war? But needless to say, this is a historically unusual state of affairs. In the 600 years before 1945, Western European countries initiated two new wars a year for 600 years. And there have been uh, no wars between developed countries, the 40 countries with the highest GDP per capita. Well, what about the rest of the world? Uh, in a development that I call the new peace, the long peace is beginning to spread to the rest of the world. Since 1946, as I've mentioned, there have been fewer interstate wars worldwide, but there have been more civil wars. As newly independent states with inept governments defended themselves against insurgent movements, both sides armed, uh, financed, and egged on by the Cold War superpowers. But since 1991, even the number of civil wars has shown a bumpy decline. 
The question now is, which wars kill more people, the interstate wars of earlier decades or the civil wars of recent decades? And this graph uh, shows the answer. Here we have the uh, number of battle deaths per conflict per year for interstate wars, that is a government on each side, which has been, as I've mentioned, in, in uh, uh, decline decade by decade. Here we have the internationalized civil wars, that is civil wars in which some external power butts in, usually on the side of the government, and the pure internal civil wars. And what it shows is that even the bulge in civil war deaths is nowhere near as big as the death toll from interstate wars of the earlier decades of the post-war period. If you combine now the number of wars with the number of deaths per year of war, and sim to uh, simply add up all the uh, deaths from all wars combined, you get a stacked layer graph that looks as follows. Uh, each, the thickness of each wedge corresponds to the rate of death in that category of war. Here we have the number, the rate of death in colonial wars, a category of war that no longer exists as the European empires gave up their colonies, so that's tapered off to zero. Here we have the rate of death from interstate wars, which shows a jagged and spiky but unmistakably downward trend with three bulges that include the deaths from the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the Iran-Iraq War. Here we have the pure civil wars and the internationalized civil wars. And uh, as you can see, the bulge of deaths from the civil wars by no means makes up for the decline uh, that the world has enjoyed from the uh, interstate wars in previous period, periods. And in fact, here we are in the la first decade of the 21st century with a, an unprecedentedly thin laminate of war deaths, which suggests that the dream of the 1960s folk singers is uh, starting to come true. The world is almost putting an end to war. What were the immediate causes of the long peace and the new peace? Three of them were thrown out as hypotheses 200 years ago by Immanuel Kant in his essay, Perpetual Peace, in which he argued that democracy, trade, and an international community all changed the incentive structure uh, among nations to make war less appealing. More recently, Bruce Russett and John O'Neill have tested Kant's hypothesis and have found that all three of these variables increased in the second half of the 20th century, and in a large regression analysis showed that holding everything else constant, all are statistical predictors of peace. Here we have the uh, two trend lines, one for the number of democracies, one for the number of autocracies. So now in the world today, there are more democracies than autocracies. Here we have international trade, and it, over the past 120 years or so, and it, it shows that there has been a, a, a huge takeoff of trade since the end of World War II. And here we have membership in intergovernmental organizations, which has increased steadily since the late 19th century, but with an acceleration after World War II. The final decline of violence that I uh, discuss, I call the rights revolutions. The targeting of violence on smaller scales against vulnerable sectors of the population, such as racial minorities, women, children, homosexuals, and animals. The civil rights movement in the United States put an end to the practice of lynching, which in the late 19th century took place at a rate of about 150 a year. By 1950, that had fallen to zero. 
Hate crime murders of blacks have been monitored by the FBI since the mid-1990s. They were never very plentiful, just about five a year. Uh, even that has dwindled to one. Non-lethal hate crimes against blacks, such as intimidation and assault, have also been in decline since they were first uh, measured. The women's rights movement has seen an 80% decrease in the rate of rape since it was first estimated by the FBI in the early 1970s. A similarly precipitous decline in the rate of domestic violence, uh, and this is true of the UK as well as the US, and a decrease in the most extreme form of domestic violence, namely uxoricide, the murder of wives, and mariticide, the murder of husbands. Uh, in fact, in this case, the uh, decline for male victims is even steeper than the decline for female victims, showing that the women's movement has been very, very good for husbands. <laughs> the children's rights movement has seen a decline in American states that allow paddling and other forms of corporal punishment in schools. Every public opinion poll in the West has shown a decline in the approval and use of spanking and, uh, pad and smacking and other forms of corporal punishment. And rates of both physical and sexual abuse have declined uh, in the US since they were first measured in, in 1990. The gay rights movement has seen an increase in the number of states that have decriminalized homosexuality, both nation states across the world and American states, which now stands at 100%. And anti-hate crime, anti-gay anti hate crime intimidations have been in decline since they were first measured. The animal rights movement has seen a decline in hunting, an increase in vegetarianism, both in the UK and the US, and a sharp decline in the number of motion pictures in which animals were harmed. <laughs> well, why has violence declined on so many scales of time and magnitude? One possibility is that human nature has changed and that all violent impulses have somehow been bred out of us. Well, um, I consider this unlikely for a number of reasons, but I'll just mention one of them, and that is the prevalence of homicidal fantasies. Uh, a number of researchers have asked students the question, have you ever fantasized about killing someone you don't like? Say someone who's stolen your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, or someone who's humiliated you in public. And the results are that 15% of women and a third of men frequently fantasize about <laughs> killing people they don't like. And more than 60% of women and three quarters of men at least occasionally think about killing people they don't like. And the rest of them are lying. <laughs> a more likely possibility is that human nature is extraordinarily complex and has always embraced both inclinations towards violence and inclinations that counteract them, what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature, and that historical circumstances have increasingly favored our peaceable inclinations. What are the motives for violence? There's raw exploitation, the elimination of a person that happens to be an obstacle in the path of something you want, leading to rape, plunder, conquest, and the elimination of rivals. There's the very different drive toward dominance, the urge to climb the pecking order and become alpha male among individuals, or the corresponding drive among groups for ethnic, racial, national, or religious supremacy. There's moralistic violence in the form of revenge, the idea that, that uh, if someone has committed something, uh, committed a wrong, it is not only permissible but mandatory to uh, direct violence against him, resulting in vendettas, rough justice, and cruel punishments. And then there are ideologies, uh, that, such as those of militant religions, nationalism, Nazism, and communism, that justify 
vast outlays of violence by a, a utopian cost-benefit analysis. If your belief system holds out the hope of a world that will be infinitely good forever, how much violence are you entitled to uh, perpetrate in pursuit of this infinitely perfect world? Well, as much as you want, and you're always ahead of the game. The benefits always outweigh the costs. Moreover, imagine that there are people who hear about your scheme for a perfect world and just don't, don't get with a the program. They might oppose you in bringing uh, heaven to earth. How evil are they? They're the only thing standing in the way of an infinitely good world. Well, you do the math. What do we have to counteract these uh, motives for violence? What are the better angels of our nature? Well, there's self-control, the ability to anticipate the consequences of behavior and inhibit violent impulses. There's empathy, the ability to feel others' pain. There's the moral sense, particularly the sense of uh, fairness, that people shouldn't be uh, uh, harmed uh, for no reason. And then there is reason itself, the cognitive processes that allow us to engage in objective, detached analysis. The crucial historical question now is which developments bring out our better angels and stay our hand before they can commit acts of bloodshed? One possibility is that Hobbes got it right when he called for a Leviathan, a state and judicial system with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force, which can eliminate the incentives for exploitative, exploitative attack by punishing aggressors and therefore uh, reducing their incentive for uh, attack. That can make everyone less nervous because not only does the Leviathan deter you, but you know that the Levi Leviathan is deterring your rivals, which means you no longer are tempted to carry out preemptive strikes and uh, do it to him before he does it to you. You no longer have to maintain a belligerent stance of deterrence, and you no longer have to carry out vengeance, uh, come what may, if you can outsource your vengeance to the uh, state. Some historical evidence comes from the pacifying and civilizing effects of states that I mentioned in, at the beginning of the talk, and the fact that one can watch this movie in reverse when government retreats uh, from a territory, leaving a zone of anarchy, which always end up violent, such as the American Wild West, failed states, collapsed empires, and mafias and street gangs who deal in illegal activities in the first place and hence cannot avail themselves of the dispute resolution apparatus of the state. A second possibility has been called gentle commerce. The idea is plunder is a zero-sum game, but trade is a positive-sum game, one in which everybody wins. And as improving technology allows the trade of goods and ideas over longer distances, among larger groups of people, and at lower cost, more and more of the rest of the world become more valuable alive than dead. And uh, this is a point that uh, uh, our other speaker this evening, Matt Ridley, has elaborated in uh, glorious detail in, uh, in his book, The Rational Optimist. Some historical evidence comes from regression analyses showing that holding all else equal, company, countries with open economies and a greater reliance on international trade get embroiled in fewer wars, are riven by fewer civil wars and host fewer genocides. Then there's the hypothesis of the expanding circle, which was proposed by Charles Darwin, but named by the philosopher Peter Singer, according to which evolution bequeathed us with a sense of empathy. Unfortunately, by default, we apply it only to a very narrow circle of family, close friends, and cute little warm things like babies and small animals. 
But over the course of history, you can see the circle of empathy expanding to embrace the clan, then the tribe, then the nation, then other races, both sexes, children, and eventually perhaps other species. This begs the question of what expanded the circle, and the technologies of cosmopolitanism that I mentioned earlier are a plausible candidate, that, namely the consumption of history, literature, and realist, realistic fiction and journalism. And a number of experiments have shown that if, you, if, if a person is encouraged to adopt, adopt the vantage point of some other person by reading or listening to their words, they become more sympathetic to that person, but also to the entire category of, of people that that individual represents. Some historical evidence include the fact that the humanitarian revolution of the 18th century was preceded by the so-called Republic of Letters, the widespread dissemination of ideas through print, the second half of the 20th century with the long peace and rights revolutions occurred in the electronic global village. And though it's too soon to know whether the color revolutions or Arab Spring will have a happy ending, uh, they have undoubtedly been fostered by the rise of the internet and social media. Finally, there's the escalator of reason, the possibility that the growth of literacy, education, and public discourse have encouraged people to think more abstractly and more universally. They rise above their parochial vantage point, which makes it harder to privilege their own interests over others. It encourages them to step back and recognize the futility of cycles of violence, and increasingly to see violence as a problem to be solved rather than as a contest to be won. Some historical evidence includes the little appreciated fact that abstract reasoning abilities, as measured by IQ scores, have increased throughout the 20th century, the so-called Flynn effect, uh, in which IQ has increased by three points a decade throughout the 20th century. Other studies have shown that people in societies with higher levels of education and measured intelligence, holding all else equal, commit fewer crimes, co cooperate more in experimental games, have more classically liberal attitudes, such as opposition to racism and xenophobia, and are more receptive to democracy. The final question uh, that I'll ask uh, is to wonder why so many of these forces seem to be pushing in the same direction, away from violence. And I think it's because violence is what game theorists call a social dilemma. Namely, it's tempting to an aggressor uh, to exploit the other through violence, but ruinous to the victim. And since in the long run, anyone can be either an aggressor or a victim, all parties would be better off if everyone agreed to avoid violence. The human dilemma is how to get the other guy to refrain from violence at the same time as you do. Uh, if you are an uh, unconditional pacifist and unilaterally lay down your arms, you will be a sitting duck. One can well imagine that over the course of history, human experience and human ingenuity have gradually chipped away at this problem, just like we have tried to solve others, uh, eliminate other scourges of nature like pestilence and hunger. And all of the pacifying forces that I've mentioned serve to increase the material, emotional, or cognitive incentives of all parties to avoid violence. Well, regardless of the best explanation for the decline of violence, I think it has implications that are profound. For one thing, it calls for a reorientation of our efforts toward violence reduction from a moralistic mindset to an empirical mindset. That is, instead of lamenting why is there war, perhaps we should ask why is there peace? Instead of what are we doing wrong, perhaps we should ask what have we been doing right? 
because we have been doing something right, and it seems to me that it sure would be good to know what exactly it is. Also, the decline of violence calls for a reassessment of modernity, of the erosion of family, tribe, tradition, and religion by the forces of individualism, cosmopolitanism, reason, and science. Now, everyone acknowledges the gifts of modernity, such as longer and healthier lives, less ignorance and superstition, and richer experiences. Again, it's Matt Ridley who has made this point uh, with far more evidence and eloquence than, uh, than I could. But there's always been a current of nostalgia and romanticism that has questioned the price. Uh, is it worth it if we have to live with the threat of terrorism, genocide, world wars, and nuclear weapons? However, if, despite impressions, the long-term trend, though halting and incomplete, is that violence of all kinds is decreasing, I believe that it calls for a rehabilitation of the uh, ideal of modernity and progress, and it's cause for gratitude for the institutions of civilization and enlightenment that have made it possible. Thank you very much. Steve, thank you for that extraordinary tour de force. Um, uh, in, in a weird and unconscious way, I've been shadowing you throughout your career. When, when, when I wrote The Red Queen about evolutionary psychology, you wrote The Language Instinct. Uh, when you wrote The Blank Slate, I wrote Nature via Nurture, both about human nature. Uh, and now I've written The Rational Optimist, and you've written The Better Angels of Our Nature. Not that I'm trying to pretend my books are as good as yours. If any of you have seen the play Amadeus, <laughs> I am Salieri. I, I would love to write books as well as you do. I'm not Salieri in the sense that I want to have you killed, because, um, uh, yet, anyway. Um, but uh, I'd just like to say that at the end of 696 pages of The Better Angels of Our Nature, I didn't want it to end. Thank you for that. But let me start, though, with a, um, a point that you raise in passing, which is that concerned colleagues in academia sidled up to you while you were writing this book, knowing that you were doing so, to educate you about Norman Angel. <laughs> yes. Now, Norman Angel was the man who basically said, or is alleged to have said, that uh, war, this was before the First World War, that war was now impossible because of all the trading that was going on between between countries. Now, not only is that actually a wrong version of what Norman Angel said, but it, in a sense, he was right. You talk about trade. <laughs> yes, indeed, and he was, uh, and, and indeed, a number of colleagues have um, kind of put, put their arm around me, pulled me aside in order to protect myself against the uh, impending humiliation of going down in history as another Norman Angel. But uh, in fact, as, as Matt mentioned, Norman Angel didn't predict that war was impossible or obsolete, only that it was economically irrational. That, that with a, the, a change from agriculture and reliance on extractive technologies like mining to uh, greater creation of wealth through division of labor, through um, instruments of, of uh, large-scale cooperation, 
There is nothing to be gained financially by invading a territory. It's not as if the uh, gold pops out of the ground. You still need an infrastructure to develop it and, and uh, uh, make it into something useful. Uh, and so it would be any country seeking to enrich itself would be better off buying what it wants than stealing it. It would be cheaper. But he was, if, if, uh, if you agree with this interpretation of Angel, I think he, of Angel, he was misinterpreted as saying that war couldn't happen. In fact, he explicitly noted that economic incentives are not the only incentives for war. In fact, that a lot of wars are fought over national glory and rectifying historic injustices and grandeur and uh, honor and so on. And in fact, he was terrified that uh, the leaders of nations at the time would blunder into a war in pursuit of these non-material incentives like glory and honor. Uh, and in fact, he proved to be correct uh, both in his fear and in, in his prediction, uh, namely that the, the more recent studies have shown that indeed two countries that trade with each other have a lower chance of um, uh, getting embroiled in a war. And this has resonance today because just in the last couple of weeks we've had the German Chancellor saying that if the economics goes bad, if trade collapses effectively in the Eurozone, then the risk of war increases. It's not just that though. You're, the theory of gentle commerce, which you discussed a minute ago, also kind of applies on the level of the individual. That, that essentially what people like Jonathan Haidt and others have argued is that individualism, autonomy, contract, things like this have actually been pacifiers. Whereas community, tribalism, hierarchy, tradition have, have, have been the opposite. That's exactly the opposite of what, for example, most Christianity teaches. They think that capitalism is making us coarser and more violent. Yes, indeed, and, and, um, and also a, a, a common misconception is that the, um, what, has, what pulls us away from violence is our own uh, moral self, our, our, our conscience, our moral intuitions. And uh, Haidt notes, he doesn't draw out the implications as clearly as he should, that the human moral sense uh, by default includes a lot of intuitions that we in the modern West don't recognize as particularly moral such as deference to authority, such as conformity to community norms, such as keeping the soul pure and not contaminating it with prohibited uh, foods or sexual practices. Uh, the problem is that a violation of any of these moral intuitions is deemed punishable. And so you have a long list of uh, sins, such as insolence, nonconformity, that uh, we feel not only justified in punishing, but that it's mandatory to punish them. As the moral sense gets uh, purified to just fairness and the avoidance of harm, which is the, has been the trend in uh, moral deliberation in the West, there are fewer and fewer rationales for uh, punishing someone. So you don't throw a gay person in jail, you don't stone the adulteress, uh, you don't imprison someone who criticizes the king. Uh, and the remaining moral intuitions, basically fairness, reciprocity, uh, are what undermine trade and exchange. And uh, in general, they are a, a, a less violent way of organizing our lives than the, the uh, punishment of heinous sins. Um, and related to that, here's a provocative remark that I found in your book. Religion as a force for peace does not fit the facts of history. 
Yes. Um, uh, 17th century wars were bloodier and longer than, than the, because of religion. Ideology is one of the inner demons. Um, do you expect to win that argument? <laughs> well, I think that the argument has some, some uh, facts behind it, that in the list of history's worst atrocities, there are uh, a number that were uh, um, sparked by religious ideologies, the Crusades, the European Wars of Religion, the Taiping Rebellion in China, the history's worst civil war, which began with, from a, a messianic cult. Uh, this is not to say that, that uh, as Christopher Hitchens put it in the subtitle of his book, book that religion poisons everything. That, that's definitely an overstatement. Uh, and there have been non-religious uh, ideologies that similarly hold out the prospect of a utopia that also have led to some of the uh, outliers in the distribution of, uh, of bloodshed. Um, uh, Matthew White, who, whose figures I uh, rely on, notes in his book that a friend of his once asked, once mused aloud, I wonder how many of the, uh, how much misery and suffering and uh, death uh, can be attributed to religion? And he said 10%. Uh, because he actually had the figures of all of the atrocities in history, and about 10% of the deaths came from, from uh, religious conflicts. For every moral advance in history, you write, there have been social commentators who insist we have never had it so bad. <laughs> why? And then they go on to argue, and I, I get this too, why draw attention to the decline? You'll only cut off our funds. <laughs> Competitive doom-mongering is quite a, quite a profitable business these days. Are you, are you reigning on that parade? Yes. There's an old, wasn't there an old anarchist saying, the worse the better? Uh, <laughs> yes, I think there are a, n a number of, uh, of reasons that people concentrate on, uh, on, on the worst. One of them is simple availability. And cognitive psychologists such as Daniel Kahneman have shown that people estimate risk and danger by uh, recalling examples, the availability heuristic, and anything that affects human memory, such as uh, an event that was recent, an event that was large in magnitude, an event that was gory, uh, unusual, distinctive, will tend to inflate people's subjective assessment of the probabilities. Now that we have media that can uh, report anything bad happening anywhere on Earth in real time, I mean, the, most, the extreme form is now anyone with a cell phone, which is a large proportion of humanity, is now an on-the-scene newscaster and can literally broadcast color footage of uh, bloodshed in real time from anywhere in the world. Uh, this is bound to, and, and so since violence has by no means been eliminated, there's always enough of it to fill the evening news, and so we can get an impression that nothing has changed. It's because all of the trouble spots in the world where violence hasn't broken out recently, uh, where people die of, uh, you know, proverbial old age. Uh, they don't have camera crews filming those deaths. And so our subjective impressions can be out of touch with the uh, statistics. The other reason is that there is a moralistic element to it, namely uh, the way you apply pressure is to emphasize how bad things are. And there's a fear that if people think that we've uh, that uh, life is getting better, but they'll interpret it as a signal that we can relax, which is wrong in two ways. One of them is clearly there's still a lot more violence that uh, we can and ought to get rid of, uh, and, and it's been indeed the pressure to lower it in the past that has delivered some of the reductions in violence that we enjoy today. But also, I, I tend to think that there's a, a complementary danger. That is, if people just think that we're doomed, 
and it doesn't matter what we do. And Africa is just a hellhole. They're always going to be fighting. The best thing we could do is maybe recolonize them, uh, which is a comment that you, that you uh, often see. Um, then that can lead to inaction or worse. But if you, uh, I believe that if you show people, here are the graphs. Things really have been getting better. We have been doing something right. Let's figure out what it is, bottle it, concentrate it, do more of it then that's actually will lead, will lead to better outcomes in the future than if you simply uh, convince people that, uh, that everything is terrible and always will be. Um, yeah, I mean, I can kind of use this session, actually, as a bit of a sort of um, psychotherapy session for me, because I, I, I've gone through quite a lot of these objections, obviously, having written a similar book. And, and so I'm curious to know how you answer some of the questions I get. When you're accused of being Whiggish, Yes. You know, you're like Thomas Babington Macaulay. You're, you're, you're back to saying there is an arrow of progress. Um, you're, you're enlightenment. You're not relativism. Um, how do you respond? Yes. Well, I, I don't think it's Whig history to measure something and look at a graph and see that objectively it's really been getting better. That's just a fact. It's not Whig history. Uh, it's undoubtedly true that um, we've been getting taller. We've been living longer. We, we know more. Uh, and we're less likely to get murdered uh, or to die in a war and a genocide. Now, if that's Whig history, then that's really just history. That's just respectfully trying to get as accurate a picture as you can of the state of the world and reporting what you find. Uh, to the extent that it does tend to lead to um, discovery of processes that we want to explain, namely, it does seem to be, can't be a coincidence that homicides have gone down, but also um, slavery and also human sacrifice and also debtors' prisons. And hey, what do you know? Rates of death and warfare have been going down more recently. If you have a lot of, uh, f of graphs that seem to be going in the same direction, from the top left to the bottom right, then that's an empirical puzzle that needs an explanation. And if there are general forces that uh, that seem to tend to push many disparate phenomena in the same direction. That is a discovery that you make that the world is telling you about. It's not an attitude, a philosophy, an ideology, a, an a priori uh, commitment. Um, one of the impressions one might get of your book, if you read too many of the reviews, um, is that it's mostly about statistics. Now, sure, as we've seen, there is a lot of statistics in there, but some of the reviewers obviously didn't get to the second half of the book because there, there is a fabulous exploration of psychology and, and some wonderful descriptions of experiments that actually sort of change the, um, uh, the, the way you understand things, uh, really drilling down into the neuroscience as well. Um, so this isn't just a, a book, a catalogue book. This is, this is really a book of exposition and understanding. But one of the curious things about it is that you are one of the founders of the School of Evolutionary Psychology, whose kind of motto might be, if you were being unkind, you can't change human nature. And yet, here you are saying something pretty dramatic about human nature has changed. What's changed if human nature hasn't changed? Yeah, uh, and I, I do discuss in the book the, the possibility that human nature has literally changed in the sense of Darwinian natural selection operating to change gene frequencies over spans of centuries and millennia, uh, which is possible, but it's not the explanation that I uh, rely on, just on grounds of scientific parsimony, since some of the declines are too recent 
to have occurred through natural selection. Natural selection has a speed limit measured in generations. And some of these declines have unfolded over uh, decades. Uh, we know that some forces can bring violence down without any change in the genome. Therefore, the most parsimonious explanation is that none of them required this. Uh, but it's, it is an open hypothesis. So I, uh, I do believe that there is such a thing as human nature, but I believe that uh, some of the parts of human nature are uh, open-ended, combinatorial, generative, rule-governed systems, cognition and language in particular. Once you have an apparatus that can uh, combine thoughts into more complicated thoughts and combine the complicated ones into still more complicated ones, and, and there's an exact analogy to the way uh, words combine into phrases and phrases combine into bigger phrases, and not a coincidence because the language is there to express the ideas. But what, what it means is one component of human nature is an engine to come up with new ideas, to explore the space of possible ideas, which means that a fixed human nature can come up with an infinite uh, range of ideas. And if the social world is set up with rules so that uh, in as ideas are exchanged, the better ones are preserved and built upon, and the worst ones are discarded, namely the social institutions of deliberative democracy, uh, open journalism, freedom of speech, scientific peer review, uh, and so on. There's no contradiction in saying that a human mind operating a set of human minds operating under those rules will explore the space of ideas and eventually blunder upon those that really make us all better off. Uh, when it happens in uh, the world of fact, we call it science and, and, and history. When it comes to the world of policy, we call it uh, um, uh, politics and society. And um, so I, that's why I don't think there's any contradiction between a belief in human nature and a belief in progress. Yeah, essentially, the, the argument is that culture is cumulative, that, that you can, that ideas can accumulate, good ideas can accumulate within culture, and we, we, you and I can therefore draw upon good ideas that have been worked out by people in distant places and distant times that weren't available before because we've, we've, we're getting them through trade and, and exchange and ideas. As long, but, as, you can, as long as you have certain ground rules, like you're not allowed to murder people who disagree with you, for example. So I uh, see so itself is a good idea. <laughs> um, let's go to the audience. Let's get some questions. And there are some microphones. And there's a microphone very close to a guy with his hand up. So that's a good place to start. Hello. Thank you for a very interesting discussion. May I just press you a little bit more, Professor Pinker, on the point you've just, that's just been raised? There's a certain contradiction between your paper and the title of your book. The book suggests a change in human nature. The title, The Better Angels of Our Nature, suggests better people. But your lecture was saying stronger incentives to treat other people with respect. That's what you were saying. There's stronger incentives not to kill people because they are trading partners and so you can make money from them and so on. So it's almost as if you're saying really there are stronger incentives really to respect other people. Surely therefore one can qualify your argument and shouldn't you qualify it? Which is that this only applies to living human beings. Because if you put the statistics for abortions up on human abortions of human fetuses up on the screen, that would show a big increase since the mid-1950s. So surely living fetuses don't fit within your incentive structure or within your ideas. Let's, let's give him a chance or to answer. Or other species, other species. Yeah, let's give him a chance to answer. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, by the way, the, the Better and Better Angels doesn't refer to, uh, it's not a comparison among uh, people at different times. It's com a comparison among different components of human nature. At least that's the way I, I understood uh, Abraham Lincoln when he coined the phrase, and that's the sense that I have in mind. That is, some, some of our uh, inner actors are better than others, better morally. Um, you're, it is true that exchange and reciprocity as an explanation for um, a decrease in violence doesn't apply in all cases. It also doesn't apply to uh, treatment of animals because they have nothing to offer us in return for our treating them better. Uh, and th that's why I, I would not rest this entire case on the expansion of reciprocity in trade. There is an expansion of compassion. There's also an expansion of the doctrine of um, the idea of, of universal rights. That is that sentient uh, creatures, such as animals, uh, ought not to be uh, made to suffer needlessly. Uh, that very principle is one of the reasons that I think the, uh, the Western world, in fact, the world as a whole, has tolerated an increase in abortion because the uh, fetus that is aborted is not a sentient creature. And so people categorize it as uh, not a form of violence, as evidenced by the fact that contrary to predictions when abortion was made widely available, especially in the United States in 1973, the prediction was that since this, this will be perceived as a cheapening of life, it will inexorably lead to the legalization of infanticide and harsh treatment of children. Well, almost 40 years later, we can say pretty categorically that that prediction has been falsified. Uh, in no country with legalized abortion has the deadline steadily crept later and later into pregnancy and, and resulted in uh, infanticide. And the valuation of children, far from having decreased, has reached insane levels where children are doted on uh, morning, noon, and night. Uh, so, uh, which I think is consistent. The, the book obviously would not be the right place to engage the debate of whether abortion is moral, but it, it did engage the question of how do people categorize abortion, and that's evidence that, that it is not considered a form of uh, violence. By the way, uh, although abortion did show an increase uh, from the uh, 60s uh, through the 70s, I plot graphs showing that, that since then it has been in decrease for the last three decades. So that's another uh, practice that has shown a decline. We've got a question over on this side. Thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed that. But I don't want to challenge an optimistic thesis with the doom-laden thesis, but I, I do want to raise a couple of uh, a skeptical points. Um, you're quite positive about the Leviathan in the book and in, in this evening's presentation, but there is also surely a problem with the state. Uh, the state can make an art form out of violence, as of course the Roman Empire did, but the, the modern state does as well. I mean, you had a chart about the, uh, showing the decline of torture because we've seen in the, in the war on terror uh, that liberal democratic states are still capable uh, of, uh, of sanctioning torture. In fact, in neoliberal fashion, they outsource it. Uh, don't do it themselves. They find other, other, part, uh, other parties to do it. Uh, but I'm also a little concerned about your heavy reliance on the uh, human security brief data. 
because there's all sorts of things. I mean, we're looking at the last 20 years or so. And there's all sorts of things that the human security brief data doesn't take account of. Uh, all the consequential death and dislocation and, uh, uh, and huge numbers of refugees, for example, which are all forms of violence that, that follow uh, our armed conflict. And also parts of the world where, uh, such as the drug wars in South America, where people have stopped counting the, the level of death on, for example, on the El Paso border. So I, I'm a little bit skeptical that the data you're using is simply undercounting the level of, uh, of contemporary death. Let, let, let's let him answer that. But just to throw in a, 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 a quote from your book that reinforces his point, governments are institutions that by their very nature are designed to carry out violence. Yes, indeed. Uh, and one of the, the, basically humanity, I think, is always poised between the uh, dangers of anarchy and the dangers of tyranny. Uh, of them, quantitatively, uh, probably anarchy is worse in terms of the number of deaths. At least this is what uh, Matthew White uh, argues in, in uh, atrocitology. And uh, one of the development, and so once we had government in place preventing us from killing each other, then we, of course, we have the problem of how to prevent the government from killing us. And one of the developments of the humanitarian revolution that I didn't have time to speak about uh, this evening was obviously the concept of democracy, which emerged during that time and is an attempt to get the advantages of government without the disadvantages. Uh, and I think the rise of democracy has shown that, once again, with lots of reversals and, uh, and imperfections, it's a, a process that seems to be uh, working so far. Uh, in terms of... Um, the uh, recent uh, use of torture by the Bush administration, that obviously is a, a deplorable practice, but there's just no way that it can be compared to the torture that spanned thousands of years of human history and that was used not to extract, not even with the rationale of extracting information designed to save lives in imminent danger, but it was used as a form of, uh, of punishment and conducted in the open, not it wasn't clandestine, it didn't need to be outsourced, because everyone thought it was an excellent thing for millennia. Here you're talking about a muff, an infinitesimally smaller number of victims in a process that lasted a very short amount of time, was done in secret precisely because it was universally decried when it was exposed. So again, it's not to say that violence has gone down to zero, including torture. Torture has not, obviously not been eliminated. But by any historic, putting it in historical context, there's just no comparison between torture as a form of uh, open punishment and uh, torture as a, a, as a um, uh, illegal form of coerced interrogation. Um, I very much enjoyed your presentation. Um, <clears throat> something that I'm quite fearful of is um, the role of uh, uh, religion. And it's uh, something that may not be in, in, in integrated into your, your model. Uh, your presentation is, is 21st century weapons with uh, religious ideologies. Um, would you mind commenting on that, and maybe we could talk more about that? Uh, you mean religions might well, be even? Well, more... yeah. I mean, I just, you know, I'm not a public figure, so I, I can say what I like. I think, but um, I just, I worry that um, you've got, uh, um, you know, seventh-century thinkers in, in, you know, in, in the 21st century with 21st-century weapons. These things worry me, and, and they're not built into your presentation. Um, and I, understandably so, this is a very specific random point I'm making, but if you could comment. There are, 
Uh, I actually, I do discuss that in, in the book, the possibility of, of kooks with nukes. Uh, and um, uh, obviously, it can't be discounted. And um, although estimates of how, or popular accounts of how easy it is to build a nuclear bomb in your garage, or how easy it is to pilfer it from an unguarded pile in a former Soviet republic, uh, are probably exaggerations. And that the sources that I've read on nuclear security suggest that pilfering a nuke or even making one is uh, not impossible, but it's, uh, it, it's very, very unlikely. So again, I don't want to say that we should relax, that there's nothing to worry about. That clearly is something to worry about. But the predictions that it is inevitable, uh, and, and I quote predictions that people, experts saying, mark my words, it'll happen by 2005 for sure by 2009. Forget about 2010, it'll happen by then. And they've been falsified uh, one after another, and, and there's probably a reason. Let me just mention one quick point in response to the earlier questioner, which is, by the way, the Human Security Report Project has tried to quantify uh, variables such as forced displacement, such as uh, excess deaths from disease and uh, famine in the wake of a war. And there's no reason to believe that those have increased uh, in compensation for the decrease in battle deaths. On the on the contrary, the uh, most recent human security report project has shown that those have decreased as well because of the revolution in humanitarian aid, among other things. The lady in purple. Hi. Um, I'm not going to be able to put this very eloquently, so please bear with me. Um, if you think there is a part of human nature which is violent, and yet society is going to become less violent, what do you think is going to happen to that part in each of us, and where do you think it's going to come out in the future? Do you think nature will change, or do you think it will, be, uh, it will come out of people in different ways? Well, I don't, I don't believe in a hydraulic theory in which uh, we have a, a, a pressurized vessel of violent impulses that has to be released uh, through one channel, lest it burst out through others. So I don't think it, that, that it's something that we have to get out of our system. I think it is. There are circumstances in which we get, um, in which we contemplate violence, such as the homicidal fantasies that I mentioned, and that by exerting self-control, uh, we can not act on them. And there are a number of ingenious experiments by Roy Baumeister showing that if you uh, weaken people's self-control, they really are more likely to uh, burst out in violence. But I don't think there's any harm in repressing them. Uh, and Baumeister presents a lot of data that, that uh, self-control is an underrated feature of human nature. No harm comes from bottling it up inside. Uh, in fact, the people who bottle up their impulses lead happier and more successful lives. Uh, <laughs> is it, chap has the microphone at the back then. This, this may follow on slightly from the point that was just made. Um, as you see a decline in, in physical violence, um, as perpetrated towards people, and the incentives growing to trading with people, um, and looking at a sort of more efficient economic existence, do you foresee also the, um, the decline in the profit motive, if you like? So as people in the past would have made perpetrated physical violence upon people, could you make an analogy between the extraction of profit as violence, and do you see a similar decline um, and as, as, a, as profit becomes a less acceptable way of dealing with people? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I think that's an example. It's a kind of, kind of question that I often get. It, it's actually 
reflective of how far we've come, that we're looking for more and more kinds of metaphorical violence, since the real violence is so much less of a part of our lives than, than it used to be. Uh, no, I don't think profit is a form of violence. I mean, partly I come from a family of, of uh, retailers. My grandfather made ties. Uh, he bought cloth, he made them into ties, he sold them at a profit. I don't think that's violence. Uh, and, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I just don't. And somebody, fact, back, somebody back there has the microphone. Uh, uh. And on the contrary, some of the data that I presented showed that countries and that uh, encourage the profit motive tend to be more peaceable than ones that don't because say what you will about the profit motive, but it's better than the pursuit of perfect justice, national glory, rectifying historic wrongs, and all kinds of other motives that demonstrably have led to uh, massive violence. I, I, I wanted to ask about doom-mongering um, and this thing of us being more pessimistic about things, uh, even when the facts just otherwise. My, my personal bugbear is crime in the UK, which has halved in the last 20 years, but surveys show that people think it's about the same or has gone up. My question is, how much damage has this negativity done? Because we've seen we've done okay. And if it is damaging, given that actually most of us aren't going to spend time looking at charts and uh, all the things that you recommend, how can we do something about it? Yeah. Um, well, there is an incentive structure among many um, uh, kinds of politicians to exaggerate danger, such as the exaggeration of the danger of terrorism that led to the uh, constriction of civil, li civil liberties in the United States, not to mention the war in Iraq, which had a kind of vague anti-terrorist uh, rationale uh, based on a completely exaggerated uh, uh, threat of uh, terrorism. Fear of crime uh, allows police chiefs and prison wardens and politicians to put, uh, to get reelected by shaming any opponent who is seen to be too soft on crime. Uh, and so I think there is a responsibility of um, journalists to report not just um, episodic accounts of this crime or that crime, but to highlight the uh, actual figures uh, when they're released, make that into a news event, put the graphs on page one. But it's part of a more general uh, trend that I would like to see toward a greater reliance, a greater sensitivity to statistics in education, in public discourse, in journalism, in uh, government. That is, we should all be sophisticated consumers of statistics, uh, have the tools to evaluate statistical claims, uh, to find flaws in statistical studies, but appreciate trends that have been demonstrated uh, reasonably well. I argued for a, a requirement in statistical uh, reasoning and decision-making at Harvard. I was uh, outvoted, but uh, I, I think this is an essential component to everyone's education. Steve, you're, you, you've, you've finally turned me into a pessimist. You really think that, that journalists can uh, um, start to uh, report good news or, or report things in proportion? If it bleeds, it leads, as they say. Um, I've got another person with a microphone over here, but on this side, for the next one, I want you to find me a woman. Okay. So, as it were. Thank you, Stephen, for your wonderful um, lecture. Uh, my question is, uh, I'm here. I'm a man, by the way. <laughs> uh, so you're able to make a case with all the empirical data and analysis pointing out factors like international cooperation, economic or monetary benefit, and all those factors that there is a trend that there's a reduction and decline in violence and death and on. 
but is that irreversible? So if you want to put your predictive hats on, yeah. would you be able to comment that there could be some situation or circumstances where there's a global reversible um, uh, trend that actually is going to see an escalation of violence and death and so on and so forth? Uh, is, it, is it going to be a cycle at all? Uh, yeah. What are your comments on it? Thanks. Yeah, it's a good question. The, I think some kinds of, uh, of reductions probably are irreversible. And I base that not on any optimistic uh, temperament, but just on the historical record. So certain barbaric practices, once eliminated, more or less stay eliminated. Uh, human sacrifice might be the prototypical example. Every ancient civilization practiced human sacrifice. They all got rid of it, and no one seems to be any, in any hurry to reintroduce it. And so probably with legalized slavery, with uh, torture as a form, and mutilation as a form of punishment, uh, probably with the decriminalization of homosexuality, these things tend to be more or less ratchets, that once they, uh, racial segregation, so things where the rationale for, whether it's a social practice, it can be eliminated with a stroke of a pen, and then it requires energy and mobilization to reintroduce. There are other kinds of events that are more uh, stochastic, more probabilistic. They depend on multiple actors. They can be highly affected by the actions of individuals. And there, I think it would be foolhardy to predict that, uh, that, that the progress has been irreversible. Civil wars in the developing world, which have been in uh, decline, that could go back up. The rate of crime has uh, yo-yoed up and down in ways that have defied every expert prediction. I don't think they'll go back up to the level uh, that they were in the Middle Ages, but could they double? Uh, sure, they, they could. And then there, there are wild cards. There are the, the unknown unknowns, some cunning fanatic who's hatching an ideology this very moment that no one's heard of, but it will catch on and infect one country after another. Uh, the possibility of massive terrorism that provokes some unpredictable response. Uh, and then there is the possibility that uh, stress in, due to uh, climate and resource competition could lead to increased tensions. Uh, Matt might have uh, something to say about this. But it must be added, and here, as with, by the way, many of the uh, conclusions that I've uh, reached on recent st statistical studies of uh, conflict. Many of them owe to the uh, Peace Researchers Institute at Oslo, to, uh, Oslo for which uh, Nils Petter Gledich is uh, here in the audience. But one, a number of those studies have uh, shown that the connection between resource competition and armed conflict is not nearly as tight as most people think. Uh, and a number of studies have tried to measure resource stress at time one with armed conflict at time two and have found little to no correlation, which sounds counterintuitive until you start to think of uh, all the, your favorite wars, very few, if any, of which have been fought over uh, finite resources. World War I certainly wasn't, and World War II, and uh, um, conversely, there have been a lot of resource um, stresses that have not led to armed conflict. The Great American Dust Bowl of the 1930s did not lead to an American Civil War. There was an American Civil War, but it certainly wasn't about dwindling resources. So that's just a caveat that while I, I would not rule out the possibility that uh, resource competition or climate stress could lead to an increase in armed conflict, it's by no means a foregone conclusion. Um, I'm going to go upstairs and then downstairs, where I think I've got a woman at both places. And, and I, I wasn't just being flippant or sexist. You actually make the point in the book that uh, 
one of the trends that's caused the, the, the peace is feminization of society, that essentially the greater influence of women. So, let's hear from one. Um, I'm just wanting to look back at um, um, human nature once more and also taking for granted that you were one of the proponents of human nature being much more slowly changing. And I'm concerned that the actualization of violence, if it has really decreased so much in such a short period of time, if that has any correlation at all with the incidence of um, perhaps internalized aggression resulting in depression or even, dare I say, um, autoimmune diseases? Uh, I, I doubt it. That is, I, for the same reason that I'm skeptical of a, a hydraulic theory of violence, in which we harbor some amount of destructive energy that has to be directed outward. Uh, if we bottle it up, it will uh, destroy us from the inside. Uh, I think the evidence suggests that, that that's not true. And again, I'll, I'll um, uh, appeal to the results of Roy Baumeister, uh, also Walter Michel, and other psychologists who've studied self-control and inhibition, and have resoundingly concluded that the uh, consensus of the 1960s that our problem is that we're too repressed, we're too uptight, we're too wound up, uh, that we need to let it all hang out, is exactly backwards. That it's the people with the most self-control who uh, lead the uh, happiest lives. Um, many, and in fact, uh, you can manipulate self-control in the lab and uh, get people, you can fatigue self-control by having people resist a, a yummy chocolate chip cookie when they're hungry. Uh, when you do, and, then, and that does fatigue the self-control muscle, so to speak, people have more violent fantasies. They punish other people with electric shocks more readily. Uh, they put more hot sauce into their food, the hot chili peppers. Um, so uh, self-control, which really does, I think, push it, it is one of our better angels. It's one of the reasons that I can believe both in human nature and a reduction in violence. Namely, we do exert self-control under a broader range of circumstances. But, uh, but I think there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think we'll suffer at all. At the back, I think there's a woman with the microphone. Yes, another woman. Um, I'm just curious about your uh, ideas of self-esteem and violence and the relation between, I heard you on the radio saying that it's actually people with a very high self-esteem who are more violent than those of low self-esteem, which is the common belief. Yes, this, again, I, I uh, owe, owe this conclusion to the research by Roy Baumeister, who found that uh, if you actually administer tests of self-esteem to various people, it's the wife beaters, the rapists, the neighborhood bullies, the psychopathic killers who are off the scale. They got plenty of self-esteem. Uh, to say nothing of the various genocidal dictators and tin pot tyrants. Uh, the problem with self-esteem uh, is, as opposed to a satisfaction in accomplishments, and by the way, I'm sorry if I'm not making eye contact, I actually don't know where you are, but I'm going to look in the general, your general direction. Uh, the, the problem with self-esteem is that if it's unearned, that is, if it's narcissistic, then it's fragile uh, and, and easily popped, in which case the common reaction is to treat the insolent signal from reality as a heinous crime and to punish anyone who disrespects you, who doesn't uh, treat you in the elevated way in which you treat yourself. And that's why Far from reducing violence, self-esteem can increase it because it makes uh, 
signals from reality intolerable and punishable insults. There's a lot of sacred cows being slaughtered tonight. Um, over there, there's the microphone. Um, I'd like to invite you to comment a little more on the rise of uh, feminism and its impact and influence um, in the boardroom, um, and also how you would view female leadership, not just in the boardroom, but leaders of countries, presidents, prime ministers. We've seen um, some rather powerful women be appointed in Australia, more recently, I believe, in Brazil, um, and so on. Um, what is your prediction about the change and the, what will drive the change? And what is your prediction about where we will come out in terms of uh, the impact on behaviour? As a Canadian, you, you're just as happy about having a female head of state as, as we are here. <laughs> yeah, right. We did have one, briefly, in Canada. Well, no, you, sorry, I meant head of... Go, well, yeah, I mean head of state. Oh, I meant, head I meant of the state, queen. Yes. Oh, the queen. Oh, yes. <laughs> we, had, we did have a female prime minister briefly. Uh, yes, I think on average that it, that the empowerment of women is a force that that has driven down and will continue to drive down violence. Not because every female head of state is going to be a pacifist, far from it, but because, uh, um, as I very quickly mentioned in this talk and, and expand on in greater detail in the book, there are many different motives for violence. There's no one thing, uh, such thing as a violent impulse. And uh, some of them are going to be evenly distributed across the, the uh, sexes, but some of them are very much a guy thing. And I think the pursuit of honor, glory, dominance, status out of proportion to any actual rewards is something that is gendered, as we say, it's far more prominent in men. And of course, men commit more violence, however it's measured, more violent crimes, more violent fantasies, more violent entertainment, more rough and tumble play as children, uh, and so on. So to the extent that uh, violent policies come from the, an irrational quest for glory and grandeur, as opposed to practical reasons, then I think you'd see at least a slight uh, sex difference in favor of less violence uh, when, when now female leaders are in charge. Also, in uh, almost every public opinion poll, women favor the less hawkish foreign policy. In the United States, a majority of women voted against uh, George W. Bush in both of his elections. And so as women are uh, more engaged in decision-making, one should expect that forms of stupid violence should go down. There's another, one other reason that's uh, more indirect as to why the empowerment of women uh, may lead to a decline in violence. And this is pointed out by Malcolm Potts. Namely, the, uh, the main battleground in uh, women's rights day-to-day -day is reproduction. And in societies that disrespect women, they, uh, women tend to lack control over when they marry, who they marry, access to contraception and abortion. And in those societies, women tend to have to marry earlier under pressure from the patriarchs and have more uh, children quickly. That tends to lead to uh, big youth bulges in the demographic profile of a society. And in, the, in many of those societies, there's also some degree of polygyny, which means that a youth bulge is also a uh, single male bulge. Likewise, in societies that practice female infanticide or female selective abortion. And when you have a lot of young, unmarried, rootless, and, un and un unemployed or underemployed young men, that can lead to trouble. 
to the extent uh, and recent studies have suggested that women control when women are given control over their own reproduction they have fewer children and the birth rate can plunge economics held constant so as women i think have more power we some of this, these demographic dangers will gradually be diffused we're getting towards the end a couple of very quick ones if possible uh, lady up there um, I'd like to know your thoughts on the idea that um, many concerned parents often express that children shouldn't be watching uh, violent um, movies or playing violent video games and so on. Do you agree that it um, you know, erodes the sense of empathy in children or do you think in fact that today the, the increasingly sophisticated um, simulations we have of, of violence and video games and virtual reality and movies and so on actually help children to, you know, vent that violent streak elsewhere and then have more self-control um, in real-time kind of uh, interactions with people. Yes, I, I do think that, that violent entertainment of ch uh, in children is a red herring. That, uh, for one thing, consumption of, of violent video games has skyrocketed during exactly the decades in which the rate of real violent crime has fallen. This isn't to say that there's a causal relationship, but just that everyone's expecting that kids should be going wild with all those video games, but it hasn't happened. And you, there, uh, there are at least some reasons to take seriously the possibility that there's a causal relationship. One of them is uh, a, uh, 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 a young man who's behind a video screen isn't doing a number of other things that he could be doing. Uh, another is that as uh, Baumeister points out in a recent book by John Tierney, Video games are the last pocket of meritocracy that today's children uh, face. That in so many schools, because of the self-esteem movement, they're given the gold stickers for showing up. Uh, it's considered to be you know, invidious, competitive, and so on for kids to be graded according to their performance. Well, in a video game, it's merciless. You don't get a gold, you don't get a gold star for showing up. Uh, and one could speculate, as they do, that they self, uh, because they have data showing that self-control generalizes. If you, um, uh, if you put away the laundry, uh, then you're more likely to lose weight and vice versa. Uh, it's conceivable, though not shown, that kids who learn the self-discipline of practicing for a goal, uh, not acting impulsively, exerting the self-control necessary to succeed in video games might, could generalize it to other spheres of life, including uh, inhibiting impulses before they act on them. Another sacred cow. Um, the, the, the last word to a man, I'm sorry, that's accidental. Yeah, um, just returning to the question of human nature and um, the, civ the civilizing that we've had, um, if, you, if you were to take um, a prehistoric man or woman, but actually, in this case, man, um, who was obviously had a, an opportunity to gain resources through violence in a way that we don't have to the same extent today. Um, you commented that you didn't think that human nature had time to change through um, uh, the time where we've um, moved from uh, prehistoric violent, brutish behavior of Hobbes. So if you were to take the long view and to see the civilizing process and to be an optimist and consider that we maintain human civilization indefinitely, we have had a dramatic move away from violence. Do you not think that perhaps through the agent of sexual selection, for example, mm -hmm. there could be some move 
in human nature, away from um, the violent impulse. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to be clear, it's, it's, uh, uh, my point in response to an earlier question was just that the declines of, say, the last 50 years could not be attributed to natural selection. There certainly hasn't been time in the two generations or, or fewer if we're talking about the uh, new piece of the last 20 years. And so I was just extrapolating those social, uh, cultural changes, whatever they were, saying they were all we need to explain the earlier uh, reductions in violence. But I, I would not claim that, say, the, what I've been calling the pacification process, which in some parts of the world has unfolded over uh, millennia, I would not say that that has not been enough time. Based on our understanding of natural selection, that is enough time for it to be possible. Whether it in fact has happened, that is, whether your thought experiment of putting a uh, Cro-Magnon man, man in a time machine, time transporting him to the present, provoking him with some insult and seeing whether he lashes out violently or not. Um, I don't know the answer. Uh, I, uh, and um, all I know is that we don't have evidence that he would be biologically different from contemporary humans. Uh, this isn't to say that, that uh, he, he necessarily wasn't. One of the reason to be at least a little skittish in accepting that, that claim is that it could also be tested by looking at people who've lived in under government for many, many generations and those who uh, until recently uh, have had ancestors that have lived in hunter-gatherer or other tribal circumstances. And you can make the same prediction about different uh, ethnicities, a prediction that I don't expect anyone to test anytime soon for uh, obvious political reasons. Uh, because a conclusion might be politically uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's false, but it does mean that we should be demand a high level of evidence before we assume that it's true. And so I just don't think that evidence is with us now. If the payoffs for, in terms of uh, reproducing, that is, finding a mate, bringing up children, having the children survive to have children of their own, if that changed over enough of the world over enough generations going forward, then yes, that's what natural selection consists of. So it could, in theory. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. I'm sorry we didn't get to every question. Stephen Pinker. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared debates, talks and discussions free on iTunes. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. 
Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>